Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schink, and joining me on the show today is Harrison Keeley. Hello. On last week's show, we discussed a book called First Sight, ESP and Parapsychology in Everyday Life. So as the title suggests, it is a book that pretty much turns the fields of parapsychology and psychology on their head by... Uh, looking at things like clairvoyance, ESP, telepathy, and viewing them not as unpredictable, illusory, or dangerous, but as just basic parts of every person's daily experience. So uh, we've discussed a lot of the technical terms on last week's show, so I would highly recommend, if you haven't uh, listened to that already, to go ahead and check it out. Uh, But just to give a little bit of that background, just for anybody who's still getting up to speed, uh, the author was Dr. Jim Carpenter. He's a clinical psychologist uh, still in practice and a research parapsychologist with decades of experience in the field. And so he came at it from the perspective of somebody who's been trying to wrench meaning from the suffering of normal people in their lives as a clinical psychologist and also to wrench meaning from or wrest meaning from the often crazy experiences of, you know, people who exhibit uh, uh, ESP or PK and how it can be studied within the laboratory and what that means for, for everybody's life. And so he came up with a lot of technical terms and, and or he used a lot of technical terms in order to uh, explicate his theory. And so I'm just going to go ahead and read a paragraph that kind of lays that all out short and sweet uh, so that everybody is on the same ground uh, for this conversation. So he writes, I think the following constructs are useful in accounting for some aspects of how the mind works in producing experience and behavior out of unconscious processes, meaning, intention, prehension, weight, signing, and somatosensory. Meaning means what we ordinarily take it to mean. And while intention refers to the goals that someone is aiming to realize, intentions can be unconscious, and these are especially important in the functioning of psi. Prehension means to grasp, and psi is a form of an unconscious prehension, though it is not the only kind, since you can have subliminal prehensions and other kinds of uh, unconscious prehensions. But weight means that the mind unconsciously senses that something prehended is important or unimportant to some degree, in light of one's intentions in the context of the situation. Signing can be either positive or negative and means that something that is prehended is either included or excluded, i.e. avoided, in your experience or your behavior. So if something that is prehended is heavily weighted, its contribution, either positive or negative, will be strong and potentially obvious. If lightly weighted, its contribution will be negligible. Somatosensory refers to that sphere made up of all the things that impinge in some way upon the physical organism with its sensory systems. Extrasomatosensory refers to the universe beyond that ken, a universe that we are in touch with all the time. So that is the ultimate takeaway from that book, was that in our everyday life, we are in constant contact, although completely unconsciously, with a world of information that, we can, that is not available to our senses, and that we pick up on that through uh, ESP and through PK and uh, various other uh, forms of psychic 
what you would call ability, I suppose, uh, but that we don't normally get into re uh, register into our consciousness just because it's not relevant or we don't need it. It's not as important as other forms of information. And so on this week's show, we're going to discuss some of the implications that this theory has for different fields, uh, especially uh, evolution and the the clinical setting, you know, uh, the psychotherapeutic setting. So with that, Harrison, do you have any thoughts on where you want to go with that? Yeah, first I just want to kind of expand on your introduction a bit to give some examples to kind of place those concepts in, uh, you know, in the, the sphere of actual practical reality, like concrete reality. So uh, last show I gave an example, the, uh, you know, mistaking a... a, a a stick in the forest for a snake, for instance. Um, and I gave that as an example of uh, how this kind of process works. And I was thinking about that some more, uh, prompted by a question. And so I just want to kind of clarify that as a way of, um, you know, providing an example of how Carpenter basically says the mind works. So to start out with, he uses, or he references the, you know, the vast literature on unconscious processes, which has been going on for, you know, decades now. Uh, it's, you know, a pretty, it's, pretty confirmed in the scientific community, the fact that, for instance, subliminal um, information can affect your physiology, your emotions, and your cognition, essentially. And you can do that by, you know, priming people, like we talked with last week, with, you know, emotionally uh, relevant images that they're not consciously aware of seeing, but, it, but they respond, you know, physiologically as if they, you know, were conscious of it. Um, you know, so they, they might uh, start sweating more. Um, they'll, they'll show ver various physiological signs of arousal of one sort or another. And uh, that, will ex uh, that can affect their decision-making in various conditions. And there's just a you know, vast amount of literature to confirm that there are unconscious processes going on um, all the time that, as Carpenter says, seem to be, um, um, if not conscious, they are still intelligent. Like, they, they still... They're, these processes are going on as if this unconscious part of yourself is on its own conscious to some degree. It has its own intentions, has its own um, you know sense of agency. It's goal directed basically, and it and it responds. It responds and interacts with the world um, according to uh, like meanings and purpose, like he says. So if we have an example of how that how that works, he basically says that um, using all this literature to confirm it or to support it that. At any given moment, the, what goes into the creation of a conscious experience is it's basically uh, like a holistic mingling of all different kinds of streams of information. So you have memories, you've got your immediate feelings and sensations, and you've got um, your, your conscious beliefs and knowledge, which is tied into memory. All this is tied into memory, of course, because you can't, um, you can't do anything without memory. Uh, you know, you can't communicate, you can't think, because even to, even to think one thought requires the... The, the span of memory it takes to, you know, start and finish that thought. Uh, and, and then when you get into long-term memory, like, you need, you need memory in order to be conscious. And, um, but in addition to that, he says that there are these uh, psi impressions, psi information, psi-derived information that is basically, um, you know, received by the mind in some way. The mind grasps out and, and, and receives that information, and he argues that it receives, like, pretty much all available information. Uh, we can get into that in a second. And then the way that consciousness seems to work is to highlight the most important and relevant information for the unconscious and conscious goals in the moment. 
So if something isn't relevant in the moment, it won't be it won't be perceived or uh, you know weighted as important. And if it is important, it'll be weighted either positively or negatively to either bring it to consciousness or not. And all of these, so all these streams of information are going, are entering into any conscious moment. And the, maybe their relative uh, strengths will be determined on a case-by-case basis, uh, you know, in the, in the context of the moment. So, for example, the way he'd say that Psy might come into it would be, um, well, he, give, he gives the example, I think we gave it last time, of like, you know, a tiger in the forest and uh, either being aware of it subliminally or not. But uh, maybe just to use the, another example, I'll, I'll, I'll say maybe you're like you're walking through a minefield and you're not sure, you're not, you, you don't know that you're walking through a minefield. In, his, in this hypothetical scenario, what he would be saying would be if some kind of psi exists, um, if, if some kind of like non-sensory information is being received in this moment, of course, um, like a, a, a mine in, in your, the path that you're walking is, will, will be highly relevant to you personally because you might die if you step on it. So he would say in that situation, uh, an individual might receive that like piece of psi information, like you know the the mind is is grasp, grasping out into the world for potential meanings. That is a highly meaningful uh, piece of information potentially. So the way that might so so that's the first step. It gets weighted as important, but um, whether it gets signed positively or negatively, well, let's look at uh, an, an an example of that. So. If it gets signed negatively, that means it's important, but it doesn't enter into uh, the conscious experience. At the same time, it might uh, it, um, it might be signed positively. Um, well, I don't know what he'd say about this, um, it, because it can affect behavior um, without coming to consciousness. I'm not sure if he'd say that's signed positively or not. I can't remember how he would distinguish that. But you can imagine, for instance, um, like walking along this minefield, not realizing it, you're coming up to a mine, and then all of a sudden you just kind of lose your balance and you trip and you trip over the mine. Whereas if you wouldn't have tripped over it, you would have stepped on it. And you might just think, oh, well, you know, wow, that was weird. I just kind of lost my balance there for a second. Having no awareness whatsoever that you just avoided total disaster. He would consider that like coincidence, an example of um, psi-derived information that is uh, resulting in an inadvertent behavior on your part. You're not sure why you did what you did, but it was significant in the sense that you just saved your life without knowing it. Now, in the case of when you, like a misperception, when you see a, like a vague shadow and you're not sure what you see and so your mind kind of plays tricks on you, this would be an example of, like if there's nothing really there, I think what P- Carpenter would probably say is that, you know, there's no kind of side-derived information coming from it because it isn't relevant on a subliminal level. You know, that might just be a stick in the, you know, in the, in the bush or that might be just a, a, a person-shaped shadow, like, you know, cast by maybe a mannequin or just, you know, some random collection of, of objects that, see, that uh, you know, by chance happens to make a, a human-formed shadow. So on, a, on a, a psi level, on the unconscious, you know, non-sensory level, that won't be weighted as a positive thing because there's no, there's no actual relevance to it. The relevance comes when you actually... Um, when you see the vague information. So now you have like a, uh, a concrete sensory, um, like instantaneous, like, cause this happens in a split second, right? Where you see something and you, and you get that startle response right away. So in that, in that case, you might not, there might not be any psi type information going on, but it's still activating the same kind of unconscious processes because subliminal and psi information acts subliminally, subliminally in the same ways. They act subliminally in the same ways. 
So you see that, and it's a vague, a vague sensory picture, right? And what he says is when there's, when there's uncertainty, when there's vagueness, the mind then searches for meanings. It searches for potential meanings. Well, what could that be? Well, that could be uh, a person, and that, and that looks kind of shady, and that, that could be dangerous. That could be a snake. That could be very dangerous. So it prepares your body for a response by basically just cycling through um, like a, you know, a catalog, essentially, again, dependent on memory, of potentially significant things that those, that vague stimuli could be representing. And so it prepares you for that action. It's not necessarily going to be right. Um, it could just be a guess. So that this kind of ties into the, the work that like Daniel Kahneman and guys like him have done on the, you know, the adaptive unconscious, Timothy Wilson too, on how like this, these unconscious processes are basically heuristic. They, they aren't perfect. They basically, they look at a situation and kind of go for the best bet. <clears throat> Sometimes it's wrong, but it, it ends up being, um, it ends up being advantageous because you're better off being wrong that in, in the sense of being scared of something that's not there than you are of not being scared of something that is there. Um, it'll pay off, essentially. So in that case, you've got all of these, in those instants of behavior and of experience, you've got all these streams of information coming in um, from the senses, from uh, memory, because your memories are contributing to your perception, um, you know, the, just the just even so that you know what you're looking at. Because you can't know what you're looking at if you don't remember what that form actually is, right? It's, I mean, you can't recognize your friends if you don't remember what they look like and who they are and what kind of people they are. And that applies to every situation. So memory is a, a great contributor to the, the construction of a conscious, conscious experience. And uh, Carpenter would add that <clears throat> Psi, too, is a contributor to all conscious experience, but you just don't necessarily see it all the time. You know, because it gets fully incorporated into into the into the conscious experience, and by the time you're consciously experiencing something, you've got that sensory confirmation of whatever sigh might have been there. So you don't recognize the sigh because you've already because you have the experience. You've got the conscious sens sensory experience. The you don't you have no need for sigh and no way of detecting it because it's just it's kind of like submerged within and underneath the actual experience that you're having. So. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give those examples just to kind of give a, a way of, of seeing how it might work in, in actual concrete examples. And then, so if we move on to like the topic that we want to get into today, these kind of, well, we'll see how much we get into them. We might have to do another show at some point. But um, he's got a chapter in here on um, basically how this works in the consulting room. First Sight in the Consulting Room is the name of the chapter. And he's got a great talk um, that he gave at like the, the Rhine Center, I believe, um, <clears throat> a year or two ago on, on this very chapter. Um, he goes a bit more in depth and gives some, uh, some additional um, examples from basically ca case studies from his own experience and the experience of other psychotherapists. Basically laying out how the theory applies in just in the wide context of psychotherapy. And um, so how it can help looking at situations like this and even how it can help in like a, uh, a therapeutic sense um, not only so not only not only in the theory and understanding what's actually going on in psychotherapy but how to explain certain phenomena inherent in psychotherapy and also how in certain situations that can actually help the process so maybe we can get into that um i recommend checking out the video we'll have a we'll try to include a link in the show description so you can watch it because uh it's nice to get an idea of what uh what carpenter himself is like and to to see the examples because uh 
you know, he's a good speaker and uh, the stories are really good too. So we wouldn't be able to do justice by <clears throat> trying to give all the details of, of them. So uh, yeah, at the very least watch it for the stories because they're pretty mm -hmm. interesting. Um, maybe to start out with, um, before he gets into his examples, um, he's only got like a page on this in the book, um, which kind of covers most of the uh, most of the ideas. But it's good to to see it in the in the video too because he kind of expands on it. It's this i it's this theory of that's been um, developing, I guess, pretty recently called master or control mastery theory for psychotherapy, and it's kind of like an attempt to describe the the kind of dynamics of psychotherapy, what like what's going on, what how it works, and um, and I guess why it works too. And the basic principle is that um, the basic principles on which the theory is based is that people are innately seeking control of their own emotional lives and mastery over their problems. So that's kind of one of the basic um, axioms or principles of this thing. So that when people are going to psychotherapy, it's actually because on some level they have a wish to get better, essentially. So they have some awareness that there's something wrong in their life. And some awareness, however unconscious it is, however unconscious it is, that they can get better and that they want to get better. And part, uh, you know, another axiom or principle would be that we think, decide, and plan unconsciously as well as consciously. So that's kind of, that's been inherent in um, like psychotherapy of all sorts. That you know, back to the original psychoanalysts like Freud, th that there is this unconscious thing that's kind of doing its own thing, and uh, that it does have some kind of agency. And that um, maybe uh, one more basic principle is that uh, many people have powerful, unconscious, what he calls pathogenic beliefs that make them unhappy and ineffective. And that these are basically, the way they describe these pathogenic beliefs is that they're, they're kind of, they're, they're unconscious beliefs that form usually in childhood that uh, as a result of usually trauma and neglect. So, for example, you might have a, a kid who develops the belief <clears throat> that if they get too attached to people, uh, those people will disappear. Because in their life, everyone that they got attached to disappeared from their lives. Maybe they were, you know, their, their, their father left them, their mother committed suicide, they were put into foster homes and just, uh, you, know, sh um, you know, shunted from one family to the next. And anyone, so anyone in their life that they actually, that, that they actually cared about and that might have cared for them, um, doesn't remain as a you know a fixture in their life, so that will create like an unconscious belief that uh, that you can't get attached to someone. It's like it's a protective mechanism because if I don't get attached to someone, then they can't leave me, and that bad thing can't happen. Now, of course, it's pathogenic because um, it isn't based in reality. Like it's a, it's a good conclusion to come to. It just it's not the best conclusion to come to. You know, and it works at a time, especially for a child who can't. You know, can't understand all the details and all the context, and and um, and then can't see as an adult that it doesn't apply in the same way as it did when they were a child. <clears throat> so, people who kind of follow this kind of theory would say that people enter therapy with the unconscious wish that the therapist will help them disprove these beliefs. So again, there's an unconscious. Um, awareness or, um, you know, desire, or first of all, there's an unconscious awareness that these beliefs are pathogenic, that they, that they aren't healthy, and that, that having them dispelled would make them better. So they enter into therapy kind of like with the unconscious wish 
that this person that they're going to be engaging in therapy with, their, their therapist, will be able to help them by bringing some reality to, to the situation, by kind of clarifying and, and correcting these false beliefs that they have. So um, what they then do, this is um, kind of also a description of like the psychotherapeutic process, is that a person with these pathogenic beliefs will then um, carry out what they call unconscious tests on the therapist. Um, because they've got these beliefs, right? So now comes the testing period. It's like, okay, well, on some level, I think you're going to help me. But if that's the case, you know, I've, you've, I've got to test you out first, and you're going to have to prove yourself that you can actually uh, do what, what I'm hoping that you'll do. But this is often like a, it's, it too is an unconscious process. Like if you ask um, a person in therapy while they're, why they're acting in a certain way, they won't be able to give you the answer. You know, that's why they're going to therapy, to try to find the answer. And that's what the therapist is for, to try to give them the answer, to try to say, oh, well, you see what you're doing here. Um, you see how this is, uh, this is kind of playing out to confirm or, or, um, or deny this pre-existing belief that you have. Um, an example of that might be, that, well, one that he gives is um, he had this one um, patient that came in and just like sat very close to him, like uncomfortably close. And that is a that is a test, um, and we you, depending on how you look at it, at these kinds of things, you can see them as tests, manipulations, which essentially they're the same thing, or um, you could see them as um, also self fulfilling prophecies because a lot of these things are like that. It's like if you if you are are if you believe that everyone that you get close to is going to leave you, you're going to, the the behaviors that you have are going to be pushing them away. Um, that's just the way these things kind of work. So right here, this woman enters the you know enters his office and just sits uncomfortably close to him. Or it might have been a man. I can't remember. And the test there is to see if he is going to like reject her um, because she's making him uncomfortable. And of course, it's a totally manipulative thing to do, and especially in everyday life. If like because you know if you don't know someone and you, and you do that to, to to them, they're going to be put off and they're going to be made uncomfortable, and then they're just going to confirm your pathogenic belief. So this is a test. It's like, okay, um, I'm going to sit close to you, and because if, if, if you do get too close to me, then you are just going to leave, and, then, and that's going to prove that I'm right. But there's a part that's... So again, it depends on what angle you're looking at it from, right? Because on, on the one hand, you could say that that's the part in control, and it's, it's, it's actively trying to push people away. But the ma control mastery theory people would be saying that no, there's actually an unconscious wish to get past this and to understand it. So the it's actually a test to the therapist. If the therapist can actually um, maintain interest and not be put off by you, you're like, oh, wow, okay. Maybe this person actually cares. And it's, it's, it's usually only going to be the therapist that will, in this kind of relationship, that will be able to do that because, like I said, in everyday life, these kinds of things might be considered um, like unacceptable in everyday life and just me and just um you know you wouldn't expect some totally random stranger to put up with that kind of behavior it's like they're just going to be like okay moving on right so so that's basically what the what the psychotherapy a lot of what the psychotherapeutic process is about is the is the therapist or the the patient constantly testing the therapist and the therapist in every instant like in, in every example of this has to kind of like, you know, guess what the right answer might be. Okay, I think that this might be the belief that they're, that they're going for. And depending on what the belief is, you know, it can determine whether you do one thing or the other thing. Like because there might be a situation where someone's sitting too close is doing it for a different reason. And they're basically maybe asking for correction. 
So it might be the right thing to say, okay, well, you know, right now you're sitting uncomfortably close to me right now. And, you know, that's kind of not really socially acceptable. So I'm going to have to ask you to move back. So in one situation, that might be the right thing. In another, it might be the right thing just to, just to, you know, smile and nod essentially. That's, um, and as he says in the book, that's kind of a lot of psychotherapists don't like that idea because it means that every situation is different and they don't have like simple black or white rules to follow. Always do this in this situation, always do that in this situation. So um, those are kind of the basics of that theory. And what he basically does is compare that to his own theory and show how they're compatible. Because, of course, his first sight theory is also that there are... Um, that there are unconscious and conscious intentions and motivations going on all the time. That's the same between both theories. And that um, for first sight theory, the idea is that prehensions of this non-sensory information don't have <clears throat> clear content that's available to consciousness, to awareness. And that they function as kind of like orienting instructions in the, in the creation and the construction of experience. And that um, almost all extrasomatic um, you know, non-sensory prehensions are excluded from awareness because, you know, whenever you have an experience, uh, a perception, you're, you're not seeing infinitely more things than you are seeing. Um, you're usually focusing on a very, like, strictly defined set of things within, you know, the, 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 the direct sphere of your awareness. And then um, part, uh, another part of first sight theory is that sensory experience is usually much more useful in achieving goals. So that's why that's why we are usually in the vast majority of cases like kind of tied to our our bodies to our sensory uh, sensory information and the and the, the conscious awareness of you know what is immediately around us. It's because that's what's most immediately relevant to us as you know physical beings. Um, you know starting with the very just survival of our bodies. That's very important in order for us to continue and to be able to keep experiencing. So it, uh, it makes sense that like the, the most immediately relevant things are going to be kind of direct sensory experiences. But the way this kind of plays out in a psychotherapeutic uh, setting is that you've got all of this stuff going on beneath the surface that isn't, uh, isn't available to awareness. You're not aware of your unconscious motivations. You're not aware of these pathogenic beliefs. Um, you might have memories that you've forgotten. Um, so a lot of things that happened in your past that you don't have <clears throat> conscious access to. And it's basically the therapist's role to then, um, well, as he put it, and as therapists have been, you know, putting it for, you know, since the beginning, to make the unconscious conscious, to see the signs in that relationship, in that in that dynamic, and then to bring those to light as a way of um, um, of making clear the things that are uh, are usually unconscious and that the the patient is not aware of. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, right, because that's why they're going into the therapist is to figure out why they have this belief or rather not even necessarily to figure out why they have this belief, but to, to have this belief disproven to them because mm -hmm. they might not even know that they have this belief, but they're going in like, for example, you, you use the example of, uh, you know, th this guy who is uh, convinced that everyone is going to reject him mm -hmm. um, and that there's no reason to have an attachment. And he gives the example of uh, uh, a, a man 
who was, uh, I think he was abandoned as a child. He was, he, he had just a spare remember of his, he remembered his parents and then he was adopted by his grandparents. But you know, these were two strangers to him. They obviously the family was broken. The parents and the grandparents didn't get necessarily get along, but the grandparents took him in. But then shortly after that, he's taken in by like foster parents. Mm -hmm. And so his early memories are basically as soon as you get attached to someone, then they're going to, they're going to leave you. And, you know, as long as you're, it seems like as long as your unconscious is working fairly well, um, you could probably, probably just slide through life completely unconsciously. I think at some point he even speculates that the only, the only time you really become conscious of things is when they're difficult, Mm -hmm. when you actually have to become conscious of trying to figure out what's going on. And so when you are going through your life and you keep on bumping your head into this same wall over and over again, it creates this pain, suffering uh, for yourself, for others. Something isn't right consciously. You, can, you know that something isn't right, but unconsciously, your unconscious is continually trying to test this belief out, and everyone that it tests this belief out on proves the belief. Mm-hmm. That's the I think that's the fundamental problem, is that if you think that everyone is going to reject you, and then you are unconsciously provoking people to reject you in order to prove it wrong, then most people, you know, aren't, don't go to school for psychotherapy mm-hmm. and they have enough on their plate on their yeah. plates than to disprove your, your, uh, hypothesis, your unconscious hypothesis. So mm-hmm. then eventually, you know, if you are lucky enough or, you know, maybe perhaps through, you know, just unconscious, um, reasoning, you go in to see the therapist. Then when you go in to see the therapist, finally here's somebody who can, who is paid to sit there and listen to your nonsense and listen to you spew all this, you know, that, oh, I, you know, I, the psychoanalysis is stupid. Therapy is dumb, blah, blah, blah. You have all these conscious reasons for all these narratives, conscious narratives for why you behave the way that you do. But through constantly the, the therapist mirroring that, then you start to, um, you start to get an idea of your unconscious starts to unpack what was, you know, this belief and then your therapist is able to disprove it. And now you have this new information to go on. And he's, I think he says, basically, the therapist's job is just to repeat these tests until therapy is boring. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. <laughs> you know? And then yeah. you're like, well, there's nothing to do here anymore. This is boring. So it's time to uh, you know, go back to living my normal life. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, you, you were mentioning some of the things that make therapy very conducive to Psy. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that he points out is just the safety the the fact that when you go in there, you develop this extremely, I mean, just unprecedentedly a safe situation where you can you you can um, you know risk accessing this this information. You know, if you think about it, um, you know, if you think about going into therapy as trying to do this soul work, then you know you've created this environment where you're open to this this information from wherever. And it often manifests in really strange ways. He, he has a list, a, a really excellent bi- a bibliography in the book of different books by uh, psychoanalysts and other more modern therapists who recount all of the, all of the strange ways that the psyche uh, appears in the therapeutic relationship whether it's in dreams or it's just in this sense that you know the the, uh, the the therapist is going to leave you. I mean, I think he mentions one aspect of Freud had a patient who um, once uh, World War One, I, I believe, was over. Mm-hmm. Freud was going to leave and go uh, take in other patients. Well, no, believe- he, yeah, he had a 
um, there was a patient that was that was like a prominent person, some Englishman, yeah. who was going who because the war was over, he was now able to take mm-hmm. more foreign patients. So he was looking forward to this new patient because uh, you know it was someone special, and uh, he didn't he didn't tell anyone about it, right? But he was you know privately thinking, oh, this would, this is going to be great. Yeah, and so and then the patient actually, I, I don't remember if he had a dream about it or some sort of a premonition, but he was extraordinarily jealous. I think it was a yeah. dream where he was extraordinarily jealous of Freud because Freud was basically abandoning him for somebody else. And then when he confronted Freud with that, you know, Freud was a little bit shocked, and you know, he he couldn't believe, you know, that this this guy knew had this information. Where did this information come from? He hadn't told anybody. But uh, that was just one of many examples of patients picking up on something from the therapist um, that was sometimes it was, you know, secretive uh, Mm -hmm. stuff that the therapist did not want anyone to find out about. And as Campbell or as Carpenter points out, most often they didn't actually, they didn't yeah. post the explicit details <laughs> of that in, in their, in their books, mm-hmm. but that it was something that happened relatively frequently that this relationship, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, this bond that occurred between the, the therapist and the patient resulted in some sort of a psychic ESP, uh, connection of this information transfer of information that was high, would be highly relevant to the patient, mm-hmm. something that, that, you know, that they wanted to know, something that you'd think that on an unconscious uh, psi kind of level, that would be information that would be signed as, as worthy of getting to consciousness in one way or another. But as he points out, they never, it's not ever that you know something. You know, it's not something that you could bring to a court of law and say, I had a hunch about Freud, you know, leaving. You know, it's always this, this hunch that you can act on you can choose to act on this kind of information, but most often, and one of the reasons why it's um, it's you know not something that we regularly uh, act on, it's it's just a hunch. It's yeah. not we don't really weigh it as being extremely important. It's you know it's just a, a sense, something that you might put into the back of your mind is like I, I got this feeling, um, or I you know if I have a dream about something. That you know, you know, just like the other day, I had a dream that I was going to win thirty five thousand dollars. I haven't won thirty five thousand dollars yet, but you know, but it's just you know, this the information still has to be weighed consciously. We, you know, you can't just take it um, and and then run with it and just acting on every hunch. And he points that out in his talk too. You have to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. And um, as a therapist, he sometimes does use the information that comes up through sigh, you know, clairvoyance, dreams. He does use that sometimes, but just as often he'll have people come into his office and, you know, on a several occasions saying, oh, you're the sigh uh, psychologist, you know, you're, you're all about ESP. I, I have all these stories I want to tell you about ESP. And he'll sit there and he said he'd find himself being entertained by some of these stories. But then, but then he kind of gets this sense that, well, no, this is, you know, he's like, well, what did you really come in here to talk about? Mm. And then that's when they start to divulge, oh, well, you know what, I, I have these issues going on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not that psi information is the most important, but that it does provide... Uh, it does provide sometimes an avenue to get at information that is otherwise otherwise completely unavailable to your conscious mind. Information you could never mm-hmm. uh, you could never get at yourself. It's not recorded in any book. It's you know you, you might not know anybody who could ever give you this information. But since 
for a lot of people, uh, you know, that are going into therapy because their life is in a crisis, this information is so critical to them. It's so salient that some part of them basically is, is like anything, give me anything and, and just give me some hope that there's a way out of this mess that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to give a couple more reasons why first, a couple more reasons why the like the therapeutic relationship is conducive to this kind of thing. And then a couple of more examples. Um, one of the things that he mentions is like the reason that it's a, well, one, well, you mentioned that the, the, the environment is a very, very safe environment, right? Cause you can share all this stuff and you can say things without judgment that usually like if you might tell someone else, you might get in a fight. Um, you might, you know, your, your marriage might be ended, et cetera. But with a, you know, so a therapist will listen and that creates, um, you know, a, a an environment and a bond that isn't normal in everyday life. And as he points out, usually, like, if you look at the, the relationship between a therapist and the patient, it's, it is something that is usually totally, um, totally alien to most people's experience because most people don't have that kind of, um, like, deep interaction where you're talking about these important things, even with the, the closest people in their lives. You know, they see each other you know, passing through the kitchen and when, how how much time do they actually spend talking about the most important things with each other and, and really, really paying attention with each other to, to each other and listening to what's being said and really trying to, you know, get behind everything. It's like, that's, that doesn't usually happen in everyday life. So it is this kind of, it's this supercharged environment. And one of the reasons that it's supercharged is because presumably in that relationship, in that process, you are dealing with the most important thing to you. Like you, you might, your life is going through a crisis. It is the most important thing to you to be able to get over this stuff, to, to, to maybe fix something in your life, to understand something in your life in order to make it better, to make yourself better. So you're dealing in this, in this, uh, uh, situation, in this, uh, process that is perhaps potentially the most meaningful thing in your life. And again, so that's the most important part of first sight theory is that it deals primarily with meaning and with the most important things. So, uh, the most not not so the most important things in any given moment, and that might be just you know pushing the right button on your stove in the morning to get the you know the the right temperature. You know, in that moment, that's the most important thing. But um, in in a in other moments, it's going to be something else. And over a wider span of time, it's going to be something completely different. So over a wider span of time, the most important thing might be, you know, getting your life together or figuring this thing out, or it might be a relationship problem or an issue at your job that's, you know, that, uh, that takes place over a longer span of time. So when you're in the, in the therapeutic, um, environment, you're dealing in a highly charged environment of the, the most profound and deep meaning possible in your life, potentially. So that in itself will facilitate these kinds of things because you're you're looking for the most important thing. Like it's it's this it's this um, oftentimes unsaid subtext or you know overriding context to the situation that uh, that creates this this charged environment in which these things can then take place. And so maybe to give a couple more examples from his own experience, like Carpenter talks about this one uh, this one patient he had uh, a woman and he basically he finished one session with her. And then he, um, I can't remember what the, what the details of that session were. Oh yeah. It ended with him basically suggesting, oh, well, you know, I'd like to try to lightly hypnotize you a bit. I think this might help. And he wasn't aware of just how dissociative she was at the time. So they did that. And, um, 
And then she was kind of spacey when she left, but, you know, he thought everything was okay. And then he went and he had, he had a couple more, um, you know, sessions with a couple other patients, and then he went off to, to work out. And the point he made was that, um, you know, n- none of his patients know that he works out. He doesn't say it. They don't know where he works out. And he works, he, he said he works out at this kind of like obscure place where you have to, you know, drive down a main road and then off to a side road. And then there's another, another main road, uh, well, a semi-main road, you know, like with businesses on it. But the, the, the gym is on the other side of the building, like basically in the alley. And you can only access it and see it from like the, the alley where the little parking lot is. So he was there working out. And then a- after he was done his workout, he went out to his car and he saw there was a spoon, um, a spoon on his, on the, like the passenger seat of his car with a note saying like something like, I'm so glad that I found you. Um, like you're exactly what I need or something like that. And, and he just kind of thought like, Oh, well, isn't that nice? You know, I did, did something right. But then, so the next day or the next time that he, he talks to this patient, he asks her about it and she describes what she experienced and how she, um, like she, she went home and, um, she said that at the session that they'd had, she'd had like these kind of almost uncontrollable impulses to like get underneath his desk and to like basically curl up under the desk. You know, there's probably something that she'd done as a child to, to hide from something, you know, is where she felt safe. <clears throat> but she had all these kind of like this whole process going on inside of, oh no, that I'm too old for that. That would be ridiculous and et cetera, et cetera. And, and kind of going back and forth about all these issues. And then so she went home and decided, okay, well, I can I can feel safe by going underneath my own kitchen table. So she had so she had her you know her lunch underneath her own table, and uh, and but then she just had like the uh, the the urge to to go see him again because she had to say something or or no, what she did was she she found these spoons um, because I think it was um, I think they were her grandmother. Yeah, her spoon grandmother. Her grandmother was like this wicked grandmother. Yeah, he he said that she was like a, a totally malevolent person in her life, one of the worst people in her life. And this spoon, because she she found like a, um, um, I can't remember if she she saw that her grandmother's chest in her house in her apartment was open, or if she was just drawn to it for some reason. But she looked in and she found these spoons. And one of these spoons, it was the spoon that um, she had found in the garbage, like when she was a kid. And her grandmother had accused her of um, like throwing it away or, or like losing it or something. And she hadn't. She was the one that actually found it. And so her, she'd been falsely accused by her grandmother of doing something nefarious with this spoon when she hadn't. So this brought back these memories of, of her grandmother, who was this evil person in her life. And so she, she just had to talk to Dr. Carpenter about this. So she went back to his office. His car wasn't there. She couldn't find him. And so she just, she just, she kind of like felt like, um, oh, they were dealing with um, sleepwalking. So I think part of the hypnotism was to was to bring out the sleepwalker, basically find out which part of her was doing the sleepwalking. He didn't really give details of what they uh, what they found during the hypnosis, but um, but she said that she um, she basically decided that she didn't know where he was, but she was just going to go looking, and she kind of entered the mind space of being like a, a kid again and and riding her tricycle. So she got in her car, and she said she just had the experience of just driving aimlessly, and it was just like, you know, almost as if there were a voice. There wasn't a voice, I don't think, in her, in her head tank saying, okay, now turn here, now turn there. And so just driving on this aimless path, she stopped in this parking lot of the gym, saw his car, left him the note and the spoon, and then drove off. And so the way he describes it, it's like she didn't know where she was going. Because this is the way Psy works. She was just guessing. 
right? At, at least that's the experience that she had. Oh, well, you know, I, th I think it, it, it feels right to turn here. She doesn't know that that's the right way to go. She doesn't say, oh, well, I'm going here and this is where how I turn to get there. It was just this, this kind of just nudge in the right direction that she felt. And it got her to that place that was, you know, impossible for her to have found and just so so given this situation it was it was very important for her at this moment to to do so and she was in a disso uh, slightly maybe slightly more than normal dissociative state and this played itself out so that she found and she could deliver this message because that was the important thing too is is finding him having access to him because um, not being able to find him would have meant um, you know subconsciously unconsciously that uh, you know that he was repeating the dynamic that she'd have with, with other people in her life and basically not being available and not sh and so she couldn't find that person also um she like she did have this one person in her life that was important to her like an older female i can't remember what relation to her that um that was the the stable like caring person in her life and at some point i think it might have been like her her nanny or something and at one point she went away um for whatever reason i can't remember and so as a child, she looked for her in the neighborhood and couldn't find her. So she had lost the most important per person in her life and couldn't find that person. So this dynamic then plays out in her adult relationship with her therapist, and she found him. And, and that was like, like, like all these moments, that was like a, a pivotal moment in, you know, in the therapy, to have that confirmation. It's like, so in this sense, he didn't pass the test that she was... Uh, she she was posing a test, you know, presenting a test towards him, but he didn't have to do anything to 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 uh, to solve it. He just had to be, be somewhere, and she essentially solved it on her own. And probably because you know, on some level, she knew that he was well. Like she said, he, she was glad she found him because he was you know the right therapist for her. Maybe to give one other example, uh, this is also a, a a very interesting one. He had a, a male patient who was married, and um, had a session with this guy. And I can't remember if if this was the session where he was bored. Do you remember if this was the one where he was bored? Okay, so yeah, there was a... I think that was the lead up to that session yeah. was he had a session with somebody. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, that is that okay, he was yeah. extremely bored during that session. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Yeah, so he's got, he has this session with a guy and, and the only thing he can remember about it was that it was extremely boring. And he says that it was so boring that he couldn't even like ask himself why it was boring afterwards. He just kind of blocked it out. It was just like that. Oh God, that was the most boring, like hour, hour and a half of my life. Just, geez. He says, you know, being a therapist, sometimes that happens. Unfortunately, you don't want it to happen, but, but, um, it was this, it was this experience that then gave him the, you know, the insight for what that might mean, but that's getting ahead of the story. So he has this boring session with this guy. And then, um, so he goes home that night. Uh, they've got another session planned in like a few days or something. He goes home, he, he goes to sleep. And then he has this like nightmare almost, this like this really charged dream that didn't have this guy in it. It had another guy that he'd he'd known previously that he that he'd dealt with, and um, I can't remember the details exactly of that previous patient, but um, it there might have even been a boredom element there too, like th like this other guy he'd been bored with him previously before before Something too. Something like he was bored with him, but and then he went and he committed, he attempted to commit suicide. Yeah, this he previous OD'd, guy. Yeah. Yeah, so he has a dream about this previous patient, patient <clears throat> um, that he hadn't seen in years. And um, now I don't think he died. Um, well, he attempted. Right? Yeah, he attempted suicide, but he was probably still alive because because mm -hmm. they'd um, he'd just kind of moved on from therapy after, and uh, the guy and so Carpenter hadn't heard from him. So he has this dream about this other guy. That's but in the dream he says he realized that even though the guy looked like 
this previous patient, it was actually this patient that he'd just seen. And he describes it as, you know, you have dreams like that all the time where you're talking to one person who has, the, you know, the body of this one person, but in your dream, you know, it's someone else and you're acting, you're interacting with them as if it's this other person. So he said, that was, that's what the dream was like. And he woke up from it and he just, it, he just was like really nervous and like shaking. And, and he just, and he said, well, this is like really important. And he, and he had the urge to call this guy. And he's like, am I going crazy? It's like, it's two 30 in the morning can I really call this guy? Like, and so he went back and forth in his mind, you know, over it. And he's like, okay, well, if I call him and, and I am crazy and he thinks I'm crazy, well, then I guess he's just going to think I'm crazy and, he, and he's going to find another therapist. And if that's the case, I've got 10 others that I can send him to and that's going to be fine. But uh, yeah, I don't know. So he decided to go with his gut and he gives the guy a call at 2.30 in the morning. He says he calls him and his wife picks up the phone, you know, groggy. He'd just woken her up and he's like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I just, I need to, I'm your husband's therapist. I just need, need to talk to him. Uh, I'll explain it all to him. Just don't worry, you know? And she's like, okay. So he gives her, him the, she gives him the phone. He talks to him. Oh, what, what? He's just woken up. And so he tells him, he's like, oh, I just, I just had this dream. Um, I think that's what he said. And he's like, I just, I just felt like I really needed to, you know, make contact with you and see how you were doing. Um, it just felt really important. And so the guy's like, oh, okay, okay goes to bed. You know, that, that was it. And then the next day, I think he comes, they have a session and he comes in and, and he, and the patient tells Carpenter, he's like, man, I'm really confused. You know, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, what? He's like that conversation we had. And he's like, well, why tell me what's on, what's going on? He said that the previous day, uh, it might've been the previous day, might've been a day or two before, but so around the time that they'd had their session, he had gotten like his father's or grandfather's pistol he, was, he knew that his wife that day, the day after Carpenter had this dream, was going to be out of town. He had sent uh, a voicemail message to a friend that he knew wouldn't get a message for a day or two. Um, but when they did get it, they'd get it while his wife was gone. He he'd said he was going to kill himself. And... Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's emotional trying to just putting myself in this situation. <clears throat> so he says uh, that he had planned it all out. And he was going to kill himself that day, and his friend would get the message, his friend would be able to call the authorities and come and clean him up before his wife got there. And so we said, uh, so he says to Carpenter, you know, I don't know what to do anymore, because I had it all planned out. And what Carpenter had done in that moment was to, you know, reach out at the, the precise, like, moment, you know, if he hadn't done that, this guy would have killed himself, for sure. Mm-hmm. He had it all. He had it all planned out, and um, but he didn't do it. So then, so again, just like the previous one, this was like a pivotal, like a pivotal time in the you know a crisis point that was completely um, like diverted because you know Carpenter had just followed his intuition on this one. He had a he had a crazy dream and decided to call this guy up, and um, and it threw this guy into this state of concu- con- con- confusion. And so, like, what, uh, what Carpenter said was good. You know, that, that's, that's good. You're, I'm, gl- I'm, I'm happy that you're in a state of confusion because that's what I want right now. That's, what mm-hmm. I, you know, that's where I want you to be. Because, you know, he was, cause he was sure of himself, right? He had his plans all set out. And that, what that did was that challenged that, that pathogenic belief, whatever it was. I can't remember if Carpenter speculated on what it, what it might be. But the, just the... You know, it, might, it was probably something like, um, you know, no one, no one cares enough 
um, to to reach out and actually be interested in, in me or something like that. Yeah, that that was what he he said that the pathogenic belief was was he, that's why he was so intensely boring was because mm-hmm. he had right. learned that no one cared about his suffering or mm-hmm. who he was. No one cared enough to find out about who he was. Mm-hmm. So he he just would test that by just being completely so boring that only like someone heroic would 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 try would would try and inquire into who he really was and what and you know try and find out what his life was like mm-hmm. and so then when he got that call that was he you know carpenter just completely uh just just smashed that test yeah <laughs> 3 a.m he's like he's calling saying i am worried about your suffering mm-hmm. he'd only met him once yeah he'd only met him once yeah, and that, that yep that one thing was what saved his life. So he says that now, you know, after that, he learned that if he's super bored, chances are that's the, you know, that's the person's intention. You mm-hmm. know, they're trying to be super boring on an unconscious level because it, that is one of these tests. And so again, like you just meet people every day and if they're super boring, you're just going, you're going to ignore them. Mm-hmm. You're going to confirm that belief for them. <clears throat> that's, you know, an unfortunate, but that's just the way it works. But in a in a you know in a, in a relationship with a psychotherapist, if they're trained, it's like then it's their job to be basically be like, okay, well, you know, what are you really doing here, and what is the what is the right action to take because of that knowledge, you know, because I know if I can figure out why you're doing what you're doing, then what choice do I make? Because like I said, it can be different. You know, if a person a person presenting the same behavior, like the same test, the answer the correct answer to that test might be completely different in each situation because it really does depend on the individual. So, uh, so he kind of, he learned that lesson. So now he, now he pays attention if he's getting extremely bored. But then he, he said, he said, he asked the guy one thing afterwards and he said, uh, well, why did you end up even coming to the session? You know, the, the one on the day that they did have, you know, before he was the day before he was planning to kill himself. And he said, he just got this like icy look on the guy's, on, on the guy's face, you know, tight mouth. And he just said, well, I didn't want to disrupt your schedule. You know, so, and, and, and that was the same kind of like, you know, boredom inducing, like lack of connection. It was just, oh, I just didn't want to mess up your schedule. Like, uh, totally shut down, right? The, you know, no connection whatsoever, not being open. It was just, you know, just business. And that, so that was the front that this guy was putting up when, you know, really he just, uh, he, he needed someone to disconfirm the, the belief that, uh, that, you know that what how did you put it that um yeah that basically nobody nobody cared, cared nobody gave a yeah. crap about him or his experience enough to find out about who he was as a mm-hmm. as a person he was just that icy cold like <laughs> death death incarnate but at the same time like so this would be a guy that you know is suffering extremely like on the internal level mm-hmm. but you know won't give anyone anything um like won't give them a, a hint basically well, that's the the point he makes is that he, I think he kind of joked in the in the talk that it would be nice if a lot of these patients would would give hints and be like, you know, like oh, you know, I I could really use some attention right now or something, or I could really you I could really use you asking me this question. And he says that some do that, you know, some are you know have that still have that level of self awareness to be able to engage at that level, but there are some people who are just so um, so like. Um, trapped within th- this pathogenic belief that they can't even do that much, and that the, and um, and it really does take a skilled therapist to be able to see through that, and then um, by 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 observing and 
um, identifying and then bringing that belief, that pathogenic belief to light, um, like in therapy, but by basically verbalizing it, that itself is part of the therapeutic process is to bring that pathogenic belief to light and to be able to say, so for both of them, well, this is what you're doing right now. It seems like this is why you're doing it. And that gives some, some insight um, to the patient who, who can then see themselves, see their own unconscious behaviors for what they are, and, uh, and then kind of grow from that. I think, you know, just that, that story really illustrates what, what first sight brings to the table in terms of like humanizing psychology, you know, really adding that, that full human element of the experience that everybody has, you know, the, the strange experiences that everybody has, uh, you know, especially with the, you know, the dream, the, the information delivered mm -hmm. through that dream. Uh, you know, the, you have different ways of interpreting dreams, you know, all these kind of new agey or Freudian dream interpretations. But with the theory of first sight, you get a different, you know, it, it gets put into perspective, into this more holistic system regarding other un unconscious processes going on, your conscious intentions, the intentions of a person as a whole. And it takes on a different kind of meaning. You know, it's it's not just oh, just a bunch of interesting you know mm -hmm. symbols and this and that, right. but it really it really drives it home how important it is to take it into the context of the intentions of the dreamer and the life that they're living, the the different situations that they're that they're coming into contact with. Like Jordan Peterson, you know, he points out in one of his talks that you know how does a dream, if a dream is me, is a conscious me, or, you know, just another part of conscious normal me how does it give me information that i don't already know mm -hmm. and that's answered with you know first sight is it's part of your this psi uh function that everybody has that's constantly gathering information from it's like you know the pre-modern internet really you know maybe dial up mm -hmm. but just like that girl who's trying to or that woman who's trying to find carpenter while he's at the gym you know she's tapping into this pre-modern gps system that you know just like you know she's it's not like you know it's like take a right here. Well, i mean literally yeah it is saying take a right here yeah. take a left here go straight there's this car in the in the back you've you've <laughs> reached yeah. your destination <laughs> you know and uh you know it, he talks about how um, the you know this distinction between consciousness and unconsciousness and how more oriented you are towards conscious manipulation of objects and you know life events just the more conscious and intellectual I guess you are more egocentric maybe I guess you'd say uh, in the like the, the original psychological sense of you know like up in in your mind um, then the less likely you are to reach out to that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And so it, you get a sense, like Dean Radden wrote about this in his book, Modern Magic, I think, it, I think it's called Modern Magic, mm -hmm. how what he was studying in the lab, all this parapsychological phenomenon, when he, was, when he started to look through the anthropological literature and looking into history, he realized that he'd spent 40 years studying magic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was basically the only thing that, uh, you know, pre-human... Uh, tribes really, you know, really had to rely on. They couldn't Google things, mm -hmm. but you know, magic um, and all of these different, you know, gods and goddesses, messages, myths, and all of this stuff played uh, a much more important role in a world where you didn't have explicit definitions, you didn't have explicit uh, explicit technologies, mm -hmm. and you didn't have a, a conscious awareness of of you know matter and how to manipulate material. You had to rely on this 
this function, this psi function, and it was probably a lot stronger then, but I mean, I'm not saying that it was any more reliable, you know, because mm -hmm. obviously it led to all sorts of different kinds of crazy witchcraft and who knows, mm -hmm. I'm not an anthropologist myself, but it's just, it's really interesting to see how it, how people can fall back on that system, um, mm -hmm. you know, in times of need and in times of crisis, that, that system is always there. And as he, do, 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 do. There, there we go. Oh. All right. Anyhow, all right. I'm continuing my thought. I'm going to try and continue my thought. Sorry, technical We're talking about difficulties. Magic. But any, yeah, as he, as uh, as Carpenter writes in one of the final chapters of his book, you know, it's this doesn't this psi function doesn't give you concrete intelligence. But like any other science, you know, it does. It does. It could possibly give you some sort of a practical technology that you could apply, you know. So, it, it just when I was thinking about the the difference between now and then in terms of prehistory, more mythological, um, magic based uh, societies that that honor these higher, I guess you could say maybe higher aspects of human consciousness, um, that this uh, theory. I'm not saying that it paves the way towards um, towards that kind of a breakthrough, but it is suggestive. I mean, that maybe there is some sort of a spiritualistic science that humanity ha could um, could find, you know, could, that there is something there that isn't just magic, isn't just witchcraft, isn't just ritual, but that there's something there that people could practically use if they were aware of how to of how to use it you know like mm -hmm. these these charged situations we're talking about in the in the psychotherapeutic situation you know if if you could be uh, consciously aware that this kind of information could you could access this kind of confirmation or information and you could apply rigorous you know tests to it just make sure you're not believing any airy fairy lie that's coming through a dream mm -hmm. but that you know people could access this kind of information from a higher um, more broad perspective than we have as just little specks on on earth yeah because one of the points he makes at the end of this chapter is that um <clears throat> he asked the he asks the situation of or he asks the question of um you know whether um an awareness of this kind of thing happening in the specifically the therapeutic relationship if that will affect um like the therapist the therapists themselves like opinions and and beliefs and he said that you know basically a bunch of the people a bunch of the previous therapists engaged in this kind of uh you know research or just practice kind of thought oh you know once people are aware of this everyone's just going to get along or you know get it and and start realizing these situations and he says i think it was jewel eisenbud who is a psychotherapist in new york also a parapsychologist who said that uh, but then eisenbud was kind of disabused of that uh that uh, optimistic hope and uh, Carpenter himself says he had the same experience that he'll, he'll talk to other therapists and he says there are two groups you know there's one group will say oh that's really interesting oh and listen to all these experiences that I've that I've had that are just like that oh isn't that cool and then there are the people who just give him a blank stare and are just like this guy's crazy and they they well according to the, according to them they have never had any experience like that and it's impossible and you know etc and so he kind of wonders if well it might be the case that these therapists these other therapists don't actually have experiences like this, um, and maybe it is only the like the ones that are open to it um, that actually that, that 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 openness 
and that um, yeah that that openness and he gives two other features I can't remember might actually contribute to the experience happening. So um, I think like so you're kind of like speculation of what are the possibilities. I think that you can actually you can get a a precursor of that in just looking at what already happens in the world. So if you just look at the at the you know psychotherapist community, you've got all these psychotherapists that are open to this idea, and they're actually experiencing this thing regularly. And it's it's kind of integrated into their life to a degree, um, and then a whole bunch of other people who are not. So I guess the question would be: Well, if this were kind of um, accepted on a mass level, um, there would always be people that would reject it, if, you know, pr- presumably. But if it were ex- uh, if it were accepted on a mass level, what kind of effect might that have? Would we just be seeing more of the same, or would we, or would there develop a kind of like um, a more specific, like a specialized um, you know, field where maybe like new things come to light, or you know, you know, who, who knows? Well, just thinking about it in terms of like some of the 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 PK studies that, that have been done, because um, PK is like pretty expansive. One example of that is just um, like I think they call it mental influence on biological systems or something like that. We talked about it last week. Basically, where there might be a microbe in a petri dish, petri dish and petri dish and you're trying to make it do something or something like that or you or there are prayer studies so you get a group of people who are praying for a person with a certain disease and then you have control groups and then so you look at the the patients who are prayed over and those who weren't and you can and you know they've found actual effects where it seems like praying actually doesn't work does work for for people um so if you had more people aware of this well well so already, the, coming back to my previous point, there are already a whole bunch of people who believe prayer works and who do it, and presumably having some effects. So it might just be more of the same, or it might be like uh, you know some revolutionary new thing where you know you have like national par- prayer groups who are doing this kind of thing, and who knows, maybe they might have uh, you know some some increased effects. Um, who knows? But uh, but I think so. Really, one of his main points is just that. Um, that this does happen and it does seem to, you know, fulfill a, a, a meaningful um, role in this kind of, you know, in, specifically in this environment in the, you know, the relationship between a therapist and the, um, and the patient. But maybe, you know, prayer just triggered a, a memory in me. Um, I'm reminded of just a f- first a few things that I've heard Jordan Peterson say. Um, you know, for those listening who might be fans of Jordan Peterson and who might think we're crazy for talking about Psy, um, I don't know what Peterson would say about this. I'll just say that he is a, a fan of Carl Jung, who was very into parapsychology, um, you know, did his you know, original research on his cousin who was a medium and um, was interested in these kinds of things his whole life and who had similar experiences. Like he, that's how he developed his kind of his theory of synchronicity, where I'm pretty sure some of these exact type of experiences in in the you know the consulting room, um, like a, so very interesting meaningful coincidences that happened in in that relationship, and um, you know he's said that how his his wife uh, Tammy seems to have like some prof- prophetic dreams every once in a while, and then he describes his own like therapeutic practice like when he's you know when he was still um, doing his practice. And his mindset, his mindset is, it's pretty standard and Carpenter describes it. It's being like in this state of openness. And the way Peterson describes it is he just, he listens very intently and um, kind of, it's this weird kind of 
like focus but unfocused at the same time where he's just listening focusing like focusing zeroing in exactly on what the patient is saying and then but at the same time being totally open to what's going on in his body and in his, and in his mind so if he has like the the impulse to say something no matter kind of how crazy it is he'll just say oh well you know that just made me think of this and he'll say it so I'd be interested in actually hearing if Peterson has any stories like this, because I'm, I'm guessing he probably does, where he would say something that seems to be highly relevant, and he had no idea how he knew that, like how he knew it would be relevant. It just popped in his head. And that's the way that Psy basically works, like Carpenter says. It just, you're not aware of it. And like he even says, some therapists will think of this in terms of intuition, but they really don't know what intuition is. He thinks that intuition probably is Psy-based, you know, that's where the intuition comes from to a large degree. Um, so just, uh, just to, you know, to give some, uh, some crossover with some of the things that Peterson says about how he kind of does this sort of thing. Um, and then one other thing, the, the thing about prayer is that, um, I think it might've been in the, um, in the debate he had with Sam Harris, but he said it elsewhere and when he's just, and he's describing like the, what it means to actually pray, um, or what it means to him to pray. And, um, basically says like he gives the example of when you when you really want an answer to a question you know and you're in this state of kind of like existential um dread and anxiety and you're on your you know on your bed and just like praying for an answer and just being like and he says well try this out you know if you know um you know do that lie on your bed and think about this and just be like okay i need the answer to this this question i don't know what it is and i'll i'll be open to whatever comes to mind and you just and he says basically you try that out and you will get an answer. And you might not, you probably won't like the answer, but it will be the right answer. And that too is, like, that's a, that's a kind of creativity, but it's also, it, it's intuition, it's, you know, receiving inspiration. All these things are, are phenomena that we all have all experienced in our lives, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, but we have no explanation for them. How does this actually work? You know, where, where, does, where do these new thoughts come from? Um, Carpenter says it, and I think we said it like in previous shows, maybe even last week. It's like, where does a, where does a song come from? Uh, you know, a, a symphony, where does anything new that enters your mind come from? What is the creative process? Well, um, Carpenter would argue that the creative pr- process is probably very similar to, if not the same thing, or if not incorporating, uh, first sight, you know, these psi processes is where does that new thought come from? Where, well, it comes from the unconscious. Well, where does that information come from? Where does the unconscious get that information? Well, probably, well, if it's, if it's not immediately obvious, if there's no, um, like physically causal explanation that can be, you know, brought up to explain it, it's probably going to be extrasensory. Well, it kind of has to be if there's no other choice for where this kind of thing comes from. So, so yeah, that might there might even be a um, an explanation for for inspiration and for prayer, you know, and for the answer to prayers. Where did the answer to prayers come from? Why do they work? You know, because if you do it and it actually works, well, again, just like the you know, like you were saying, what did he say about um, where do where do the what come from? The oh, the dreams, right? Yeah. Where does the the significance of dreams come from? How does how does how does your unconscious? How does whatever makes the dream? How is it able to give you information that you don't know consciously? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing in all these other areas. It's like, well, where does that information come from? How does the unconscious know it? Right, and in the case of the uh, this this man uh, on the verge of committing suicide, you know, 
Car- uh, Carpenter was given information that there he could not have possibly, you know, unconsciously, you know, mm-hmm. possessed. This man, you know, he was just completely and utterly boring. It's, I mean, it is possible that he was just, he, on some unconscious level, mm-hmm. just, you know, assembled this information and was like, oh, you know, that, but yeah. I mean, there are plenty of other cases too, where you have a dream of something that you have no conscious way or unconscious. It's, there's no sensory information that you have picked up on that could give you the information that your dream just delivered to you. And right. so then like Jordan Peterson says, where does that dream get that information? Mm-hmm. Mystery. Mystery solved. <laughs> well, uh, maybe, how are we doing for time, Adam? 111. So, okay, we got maybe we can do a, a short dis- a short discussion getting into maybe uh, like the whole evolution thing. It might sound like a drastic change in topic, but we'll try to connect them. So, um, one of the things that I like about uh, First Sight is that it seems to, it seems to scale in the sense that it's not necessarily well it isn't just about um human nature and human consciousness i mean he he even argues that it probably applies to every living thing every like biological system you know i'd say i'd even go further and say maybe it might even apply at all levels you know down to the sub subatomic um but that would be you know for a different show and we've probably already covered it to some degree in previous shows um but if you look at it as not just the nature of you know, a conscious being, but as something in the nature of reality itself that for whatever reason, you know, forms like biological forms have this mind, um, like to, to go back to Whitehead and Griffin, to the, to the premise basically that mind is somehow fundamental to reality. If mind is fu- fundamental to reality, then these concepts and these principles will be uh, fundamental to reality. So it's not just that, you know, oh, it's the nature of a human mind that it has unconscious and unconscious intentions. It would be, it's the nature of reality for um, reality itself, either in its parts or maybe in the whole, to have intentions, either unconscious or conscious. And um, so perhaps, like, you know, we did that show on consciousness and the, the kind of hyperdimensional um um, you know, nature of the, you know, all the calculations going on to create the patterns in your brain waves and how that suggests a, you know, a multidimensional, higher dimensional, um, you know, process going on that, 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 that then gets translated into, you know, brain activity. Um, if we, so if we, if we look at the, at that kind of research and, and again, going back to, um, what was the guy, Strange Order of Things? Um, Antonio Damasio. Damasio. Um, his idea that consciousness starts at some point, basically. That's what the the consciousness anatomy of the soul guys say, too. Consciousness, consciousness starts at a certain point. You know, they I think they hypothesized it's, what, what was it, the amphibian or something, um, where at a certain point, you know, the uh, brain activity gets to a degree that's complex enough to represent a higher dimensional attractor in the, the patterns of the brain waves. So, well... So when we were talking about Damasio, it's like, okay, well, what about the level below consciousness, so, right? This was the question we were trying to answer: is what what about the 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 parts in like the cells that seem to be, or, or single-celled organisms that seem to have some kind of purpose and intention, and agency, but they can't be considered conscious. Well, I think this is where first sight can come into play, is because, like, we as humans aren't just conscious. We're conscious and we're also unconscious. And there are like um, processes of agency 
and intention that are happening unconsciously. So maybe below the level of consciousness and in beings below the, the whatever, you know, whatever breaking or what's the word, whatever level of, of conscious, whatever level they reach at which consciousness, you know, um, comes about below that, maybe they are unconscious, but unconscious in the same way that we are unconscious, that there are things going on and, and um, intentions playing out and behaviors um, motivated by these intentions and aims that, that are playing themselves out unconsciously, but, the, but are still mind. Because, uh, you know, your unconscious is still uh, part of your mind. It is still a mental process. And, and there is still agency, and there are still intentions and all these things. So if we kind of, if we look at that and we try to think of, of the unconscious and mind in general as kind of universal to nature itself and to kind of all the, all the parts of nature, not necessarily all the collections of parts, because um, again, like Griffin and Whitehead would argue, like, uh, you know, a dead, uh, you know, a dead branch um, won't have a mind in the same way that they think that you think of perhaps even a, a molecule of that branch having a mind. But the tree itself might have a mind, you know, while it's living, a mind of some sort. Um, again, and those would be kind of empirical questions to discover by, you know, by research. Because, um, but the principle is that you know that some collections of matter might just be um, arbitrary collections of matter. They don't have a specific form, and certain forms um, seem to be what have consciousness. Um, like there are only a specific set of the p- all possible forms that can have consciousness, and those seem to have. Um, they seem to. Those seem to be um, these kind of fractal creations of um, forms <clears throat> of of beings that are compar- that are composed of beings that are smaller than itself, and that kind of encompass those beings below it. So that's how that's how subatomic particles make atoms and that's how atoms make molecules and that's how molecules uh, make macromolecules and and cells and the parts within cells and that's how cells make an organ or some larger life form or you know um, an animal or a plant whatever so if you if we take these kinds of principles and try to think about the the kind of um, darwinism intelligent design debate uh, and try to figure out how these fit in. I think that would be uh, an interesting exercise, and we've kind of already done it in previous shows, just not with the, not with the backdrop of first sight. So um, maybe just as a kind of preliminary um, presentation of some uh, provisional uh, hypotheses, um, perhaps it is. Perhaps we need need to take into account these unconscious intentions in like the the individual and like collective evolution of species because um it does seem that that um evolutionary leaps are um they have a purpose right the question would be whether it is the purpose of some alien intelligence that is kind of like looking at this petri dish of life on earth and saying oh i want i want this now you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in this new species, um, you know, the stink bug, just to just to annoy the North Carolinians. Um, but, or is the um, you know, or is the intention in the individual and species themselves on some level? And how do you even think about that? Or maybe it's both. Um, or maybe there maybe it's way more complex than that even. But um, 
it, so I just think it might be the case that on an unconscious level of like a a species, let's take the let's take the breakdown of a species or the you know the the category of a species that life forms exist for a purpose. Perhaps they have their own at, at the very least they have their own purposes, and they might be as simple as um, you know the as the Darwinist would say, it's survival and, you know, adapting to your environment. Um, there's probably more purpose than that. And I think there's more purpose to life than that um, because life seems to have a direction, for instance, towards more complexity, not just, not just adapting to existing, cha- existing conditions, but um, surpassing those conditions and like growing in some sense in complexity, in, in intelligence and in consciousness, there seems to be a directional aspect to, to the whole process. And so it may be that, you know, over millions of years of like the, the life of a species, for instance, there are certain lessons that will be learned or not in this unconscious testing of the environment in the service of unconscious aims. And at some level, you know, who's to say that certain intentions aren't fulfilled and maybe that the, the fulfillment of that intention, you know, leads to a, this kind of like... Um, um, tipping point level of of consciousness where it's like okay well now now that consciousness is ready for for something new and then so then again the, that there that's the important thing for something new that's where inspiration you know prayer dreams that's where all of these subliminal um sub unconscious processes come into play it's like okay well now something new we're ready for something new and that something new gets brought into life, brought brought into the world through some still mysterious process, and that might take the form of you know a new uh, or you know several coordinated uh, mutations of that existing genome to create a brand new like family of organisms, um, or yeah, like a, a new life form essentially, or you know a new. Uh, something sufficiently new as to not be um, just a product of, <clears throat> you know, Darwinian devolution in the sense that Behe shows, like just the just the, the kind of what is possible with random changes, but something like something truly new, like a new type of cell or a new type of organ, um, but coordinated throughout the entire body of the, of the new organism because organisms are wholes. Like you can't just change one thing and expect, you know, all these new things to pop up. You know, if there's a, a whole bunch of new things, those new things need to be coordinated. They need to be, like, finely tuned with each other in order to work as a system. So um, I just think at this point that there, there's probably, like, it's a two-way process. That there, there, it is very important to take into account the, the p- potential um, unconscious intentions of the, you know, the species that is evolving, and then the source of that new information as being, um, well, it will be nonsensorily derived in some sense, but then the question is, well, what is the source of that new information? Is it just out there? Um, if it's possible, well, where do those possibilities reside? And um, do they reside in another mind or in other minds? And are there levels of minds? And do those levels filter through each other? You know, so is there is there an ultimate mind that filters through um, lower level minds that, that you know, as almost like you know light is focused through a series of lenses, and uh, and does that make a connection with lower organisms? And I could go on and on, but I think uh, we might uh, we might want to just end it there. 
I think that yeah. was a fascinating presentation. That was a great presentation. Well, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed this show as much as we enjoyed discussing it, having it. Uh, that think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, join in next week. We, I'm not exactly sure what we plan on discussing next week. It'll be something. It'll be. We will be discussing something next week. So tune in, and uh, if this is on video, I hope that you're watching on YouTube and hitting like and subscribe. That's right. Have a great week, everybody. All right, thanks. See you, everyone. Bye-bye.